Will you pray with me as we dig into the Word? Heavenly Father, we come before you right now and we are once again coming before you in a posture of weakness. God, for us to be transformed, for us to be changed, for us to be molded by Christ, you, your spirit has to go forth and accomplish that work in us. We can't muster the strength to change ourselves. We want to be more like Christ. We want to have Christ transforming us. And so right now, in these next few minutes, as we gather underneath the authority of your word, would you use your word to transform us, we pray. Amen. I have three little girls, and I found one thing to be true of our family. I got a four-year-old, and I got two twin two-year-olds. And right around the age of two, uh, the girls notice something. Uh, they notice that my name is not actually Daddy, uh, that I have another name that everyone else calls me. And uh, this was, I was reminded of this yesterday. We were at some friend's house for dinner, and uh, all of a sudden from across the room, my wife heard this, a little two-year-old little girl's voice going, Sarah, Sarah. And it takes a moment to recognize what's going on, but these sweet little two-year-olds have suddenly realized that mom's name is Sarah, and she will respond to that. I remember the first time this happened with my now, my now four-year-old daughter, when this happened about the age of two as well. And you know, at first it's funny, as we kind of chuckle about this, and my wife and I just get a kick out of it, but, but then there's kind of the serious moment where you realize what dad means, and, and that you don't want your daughter to lose dad, I'm not just Rafe to my daughter, I'm dad, and, and with dad comes a whole, a whole world of meaning. Dad means I love you, dad means I'm there for you, dad means no matter what you do, I'm going to be there for you, dad means you can't run away from me far enough for me to stop chasing after you, dad means stability. This is especially true, I think, and has taken on entire new meaning for me as we've recently adopted two young girls brought two sweet twin, your twin girls into our home, and now they get to take that title of dad into their world. Once there wasn't a stability, now there's stability. Once they didn't know the love of a father, now they know the love of a father. The name itself brings about a weight when you understand what it means behind the name. In the Bible, God has been assigned many different names. The names of God always have a meaning to them. They always have significance behind them. And, and oftentimes in our modern day, we kind of lose sight of the power of a name and what it's supposed to be about. One particular name that has a lot of meaning and weight behind it when we apply it to God is the name Yahweh. Yahweh. This name literally in the Hebrew means I am. And it was given to Moses who was this incredibly broken man. He himself was actually an orphan who had been adopted into the royal palace but then neglected by his adopted family and his biological family. This was a man struggling with intense brokenness, wandering in the desert years for 40 years as a physical wanderer, but also a spiritual wanderer, as he struggled to find his identity, wondering who he was as a man. And then God appeared to him one day. And when Moses, in his moment of doubt, throwing up all his insecurities before God, telling God why he had the wrong man, God meets him in that moment and says, let me tell you my name. I am. 
I am. That's my name, Moses. Don't forget, my name is I am. Here's what that means for you, Moses. That means the God who has self-existed before any of his creation ever was, that God with that power is for you. I am Yahweh. What that means is that no matter how far you run, Moses, no matter what weakness, sinfulness, or insecurity you bring before me, I am is here for you. I'm with you. I'm for you. You can't bring enough brokenness. I know how broken you are, Moses. I am means I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I am is a, is a means of stability for a follower of the God of the Bible. All throughout the Old Testament, that name has been called on people in their weakness to remind them that they are not their brokenness. When they call on the name I am, on Yahweh, they find a loving Father who never left them. Last week, we began the story of Samson. And in this story, we're navigating through the book of Judges. If, you've, if you're new with us this week, we spent the whole summer tracing this book of Judges in the Old Testament. And just the quick version to catch you up, Judges is the story of the people of God coming into the promised land. And while they had this unique, incredible mission to be a, a light to the world, to be in such beautiful relationship with this God of their ancestors, this God who called himself, I am, they should be in such beautiful relationship that the nations around them would see their relationship with God and want to have a part of it. Israel utterly failed. They neglected God. They turned to worshiping idols. And, and Judges is really this downward spiral of Israel falling into chaos as they took their eyes off the love of God. Last week, we started the story of Samson. Samson is the final judge in the book of Judges. We still have two more weeks left in this series. There's a few more stories that happen after the life of Samson, but those aren't about judges. Those are just about the decline and total fall off the cliff into chaos of God's people. But Samson is the last judge. Samson has an interesting story. He was uh, foretold by an angel to his mother who was barren that he would be born. So when we, whenever we see a foretelling of a birth in Scripture, we know this is a, a promised child. Something great should be happening through this man. It's almost as if you read through all of Judges, you see the evil and the wickedness over and over, and you're wondering, when is this going to come to an end? And then an angel comes and foretells a birth, and you think, Samson. It's got to be Samson. Maybe he's the one who can end this cycle of brokenness. But what we saw last week is that Samson was far from any kind of savior. Let me see if I can summarize the life of Samson thus far for us. Samson is a womanizing, vow-breaking, party-throwing, revenge-filled, muscle-bound meathead who's lead primarily, who leads primarily with his ego and impulses. That summarize it pretty well? Do you like that I worked hard on that? I mean, this guy is, is your classic toxic male. He's got all the power of a male on this big, strong guy, and he's claiming that power in all the ways that our classic 21st century chauvinistic males do. He's your classic toxic male. If I could look at it just from the same story, but maybe a different perspective, this is a little boy that never found love. This is a little boy who's stuck in a big man's body and he's wielding his power without knowing how to wield it. 
He's stuck. He's he's putting all his power into trying to satisfy an empty void in his soul. He's looking to women. He's looking to fighting. He's looking to revenge, to fill something inside of him that says, you're not right, Samson. You're unlovable and you can't love. And he's reaching out. Sounds like a lot of men that I know. It does. As we look at the life of Samson, it's easy to think of him as this superhero because God came on Samson and used him to to do extraordinary feats of strength. But when you really look at the life of this man, he looks very familiar. Let's jump into the story. We've covered chapters 13 through 15 already, and we're going to jump right into Samson, I'm sorry, Judges chapter 16. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to page 215. Judges chapter 16, we jump right into Samson at his worst. Check this. Here's the hero from Judges. Let's see what he's up to. Chapter 16, verse 1, page 215. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Now, let's just capture what we see going on here in this moment. Samson's got this big problem. He's got a hole in his soul. He longs for more, and his primary problem is women. He's trying to satisfy that longing in his soul that says there's something more to life. You're not getting it. You're unlovable, Samson. And all through Samson's story, we see him going to women to try to satisfy that longing in his soul. In fact, if we could maybe say it this way, Samson's eyes were his problem. He was a man of impulse. All through Samson's life, what he saw, especially women, what he saw, he took. He didn't care what God said. He didn't care what was right. He didn't care who he hurt. If he could see it with his eyes, he wanted it. And he went and took it. But but interestingly, in this one verse, the most risky behavior Samson's participating in is not going to a prostitute. It's that he did it in Gaza. Gaza is the capital of the Philistine territory. In fact, Gaza is still the capital of that same territory out there now, Palestine. The word Palestine comes from the original word Philistine. Palestine. Gaza is still a location that we could go to and visit today. Samson is getting so brazen with his risky behavior and longing to fill that that hole in his soul that he walks right into the capital of enemy territory. This is Samson at his worst. He's flaunting his insecurities and walking right into trouble. Judges chapter 16 verses 2 through 4 read this way. The Gazites were told, Samson's come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. Remember, at this point, Samson has made himself the utter enemy of the Philistines. So they see him walk into the capital. They think, all right, we got a chance. Let's take him. Verse 4, they kept quiet all night long. Sorry, verse 2, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose He took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron that's 40 miles away. Now pause. First of all, this is perhaps the greatest feat of human strength that's ever been recorded. Samson sneaks out underneath the eye of the enemy in the middle of the night, lifts up an entire city gate, puts it on his shoulders, and walks down the street with it 40 miles. Now, what's he doing? Let me put it this way. Uh, The first date I ever had with my wife, it started raining. We were walking through Chicago, and I had an umbrella with me. 
So I put my umbrella over my head like this, and my wife locked her arm around my arm. So you know what I did? I flexed my bicep as much as I possibly could. <laughs> right? I flexed that thing, but the, the trick with flexing your bicep in that situation is you don't want to make it look like you got a clenched fist, so you got to like relax your hand while your arm's flexed, right? My whole shoulder was sore that night. That's what Samson's doing right here. There's nothing to learn from that moment except to see Samson's insecurities. He's just been with a woman, and he thinks, you know what? I'm going to show off right now. And he does this heroic strength, this feat of strength. We can all relate to Samson. Men, maybe men. Women, maybe you can't relate in this moment. But men, I think we can relate to Samson in this moment. He's trying to prove himself. He's got insecurities inside of him, and he thinks showing off his muscles might be the way to fill his soul. The very next thing that happens is interesting. There's a shift in the story. Chapter 16, verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Notice the theme. He can't get his eyes off women here. But this is actually different. Verse 4. He went to the valley of Sorek, and it says what? He loved a woman. All through Samson's story, there's been women, but none has he loved. This is a marked moment. We shouldn't miss this moment. Samson goes, and for the first time, he begins to actually feel something than just toxic lust over a woman. He actually feels something that he thinks is love for this woman. This is beyond just an impulse. This is some kind of deep emotion that's being connected to that void in his heart. Maybe Delilah's the one. Maybe all this searching I've been doing, maybe all this risky behavior, maybe all this sleeping around, maybe Delilah, she's the one who can satisfy my soul. She's the one that can make me feel secure, make me feel like a man. You know, it's interesting, the name Delilah, as readers, it actually, the Hebrew for it sounds just like the word for night in darkness, Lila. So literally, as Samson gets in bed with Delilah, he's getting in bed with darkness. Just in this opening verse, there's this foreboding darkness that hovers over the passage. Well, the Philistines get smart. The story's a bit long, so let me tell it to you this way. The Philistines get smart. They quickly realize that Samson can't be defeated by any man. He's already taken down a thousand of them by himself. So they say, you know what, maybe if a man can't take him down, maybe a woman can so they, they, they pull aside Delilah. They realize this man has latched onto Delilah. They say, Delilah, here's what we'll do. Every lord of this city will pay you 1,100 shekels if you'll find out how to subdue Samson. If you'll figure out his weakness, his kryptonite, and you tell us, Delilah, we'll make you rich and famous. That's more money than any human should ever know what to do with. Delilah, if you will just betray Samson, if you'll find out how to make him weak, We'll make you rich and famous beyond your wildest dreams. Delilah finds Samson that night. She snuggles up next to her man and says, Hey, honey, tell me, what's your weakness? Samson, how can you be subdued? He says, I'll tell you what, Delilah. If you were to take seven fresh bowstrings and tie me up, I would be as weak as any other man. Samson goes to bed that night, wakes up in the morning. Lo and behold, if Samson is not tied up with seven fresh bowstrings and there's a whole horde of Philistines in the room just waiting for him. Samson gets up, breaks the seven fresh bowstrings as if they were just a thread, defeats the Philistines in the room and thinks nothing about it. 
That night he goes back to bed. Delilah's sitting there. Delilah says, hey, honey, honey, just tell me. How can you be subdued? I'm so interested in your muscles, Samson. Can you tell me what your weakness is? Well, D, says Samson, if you were to take new ropes and tie me up, I'd be as weak as any other man. Samson falls asleep that night, wakes up in the morning. He's been tied up with new ropes, and there's a whole horde of Philistines waiting there in the room for him. Snaps the ropes like they're a piece of thread, defeats the Philistines, and doesn't think anything about it. That night, Delilah starts to get a little frustrated. This time, she's got a little angst in her voice. says, honey, you should really tell me. Will you just tell me how you are so strong? Your muscles are amazing. How can you be weakened? Samson says, I'll tell you what. If you were to braid my hair, if you were to braid my hair, I'd be as weak as any other man. That night, he goes to bed. While he's sleeping, Delilah braids his hair. He wakes up in the morning with his hair's braid, a whole host of Philistines in the room. He takes the braid out of his hair, kills the Philistines, and doesn't think anything about it. Now, as we read this story, you'd have to think this is the dumbest man alive. What is he doing? Clearly, this woman's no good for him. Clearly, she's broken and using him. You ever known someone that was in a bad relationship and you could see it so clearly, but they couldn't see it because they thought they were in love? Is that ever you? Somehow love, this feeling of love, has a way of blinding us from reality sometimes. Here we are reading what for many of us might be our own story where we were with someone that everyone else was around us saying she or he is no good for you, yet you didn't want to hear it. Samson's a pretty normal guy. Well, that night Delilah flips a script on him. Delilah does something pretty manipulative. You know, she knows she's got Samson's heart at this point, so Samson comes home, cuddles up next to Delilah, and he realizes that something's just a little bit different in her mood that night. And then Delilah says these words to him. She just says, Samson, you don't love me. Now that's just mean. That's mean. That's manipulative. She's using the weakness of Samson. She knows Samson's weakness. She knows his insecurity. She's been with him long enough at this point. She knows how to break this man. And the first thing she says is, Samson, you don't love me. Samson tries to stay strong, but Delilah, night after night, just keeps saying this. You don't love me, Samson. You don't love me, Samson. Every time Delilah uses that language, it's like a jackhammer going into Samson's heart. Because that's what he's wondered his whole life. Am I lovable? Could I ever actually love somebody? Here he finally thinks he's found the person that can satisfy him, and she's poking holes in his thoughts saying, you don't really love me, Samson. You're not strong enough, Samson. You're not really a man, Samson. She begins to get under his skin, and the text tells us that he was vexed near until death. This is how much she was beginning to hurt this man and make his world crumple crumble underneath him. He says, you know, Delilah, look, if you were to shave my head, my Nazarite vow would be complete. I've broken every other part of my Nazarite vow. And if you were to shave my head, that's the one piece of my vow that I made, that my parents made for me when I was a child. If you were to shave my head, my vow would be over. I'd be as weak as any other man. Samson falls asleep that night on Delilah's lap, hoping. I think that detail is in there specifically. I I think he's just broken, holding this woman, just thinking, "Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. He falls asleep on Delilah's lap. He wakes up in the morning, his head shaved, a room full of Philistines. It's a tragedy. Verse 16 reads this way. Let me read verses 16 through 21. 
reads this way, and he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. If ever there was a tragic verse. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. It's been said that sin binds, blinds, and grinds. Sin gets a hold of you, and then before you know it, it, it stops you from being able to see clearly. And then you're in this position where you can't see clearly, and then before you know it, sin has just enslaved you. And that's exactly what happens to Samson here. The strongest physical man in all of history, the strongest physical man in all of Scripture who took down a thousand Philistines in one day is ultimately taken down by a nagging insecurity a nagging internal unmet desire to love and to be loved. Let's just pause at this point in the story and evaluate something we see happening. This is a story of tragedy. Um, and, and Samson, as we've kind of explored, is a little bit like a little boy in a grown man's body. He's, he's lashing out. He's trying to find some way to fill this emptiness that exists inside of him. Everyone sees Samson on the outside as a guy who's got everything. He was foretold by angelic proclamation that he would be born. Certainly, the town around him was excited for him. Certainly, they had high hopes for him, high expectations. But he suddenly goes out and realizes he's a broken man like every other broken man. Only the difference with Samson is he's in the spotlight and the expectations are higher. That's certain to bring about trouble in a man's life. If he's not grounded on stability and all the eyes of the world are looking to him, He's lashing out. He's got all the power of a grown man, but no one's ever told him where to find love in the right way, so he's looking for it in all the wrong places. He's using his masculinity in the worst of ways. He's destructive, and not just to himself, but to everyone around him. All across our church and all across our modern landscape, I find people falling into the same trap that Samson had fallen into at this point, looking to fill the unsatiable void in their heart through shallow love. And this is a problem for both men and women. This is not just a male problem. The women find themselves in this problem as well. There's something inside the human soul that longs to be loved and to love. There is a hole inside each of us that, that longs for relationship, that longs to be known fully, but to be known in a way that's safe, to be known by someone who says, no matter how much brokenness you bring to me, I'm not going to leave you. No matter how much sin you, you bring before me, I still love you. I can still hold on. There's something inside the human soul that longs for that type of relationship. And oftentimes, we as moderns, modern people put our, put our trust in romance. We think that a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or someone of the opposite sex can actually fulfill us, can actually bring about that kind of fulfillment for us. Can I tell you, the greatest recipe for disaster in any relationship is when we're expecting our spouse or our significant other to actually be our savior. There's an author named Ernest Becker Ernest Becker is a secular atheist writer who wrote a book titled The Denial of Death, and he writes extensively on the modern concept of romantic relationships. And he has this great quote. He says, We still need to feel that our life matters in the scheme of things. We still want to merge ourselves with some higher self-absorbing meaning. 
But if we no longer have God, that's an assumption he makes all the way through this book, that somehow we no longer have God, how are we to do this? And one of the first ways that it occurred to the modern person was the romantic solution, the self-glorification that we need in our innermost being. We now look for in the love partner. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know our existence hasn't been in vain. We want, hear his words, redemption and nothing less. Ernest Becker's point is quite simple, and it's the point I think I've been trying to make through today's entire sermon, is that there's something inside the human psyche, the human soul, that longs to love and to be loved. There's something inside of us that cries out for it, and he says the modern solution to that problem is romance. The the thing that he's getting wrong in his book is that's just not a modern solution. It's what Samson did thousands of years ago. Samson is recorded as falling into this exact same problem, thinking that a romantic relationship can fill that void. Now, why won't this work? Why is is Samson's solution bound to fail? Well, it's bound to fail for a number of reasons. One, let's be honest, love is a good thing. God's created love. He's created love between two people. And so shouldn't we invest in love? Well, absolutely, yes. As Christians, we affirm love between people. We affirm the beauty that can come between two people. The problem is, is when you look to that other person to be the person that can actually satisfy your deepest hole in your heart, whether that's a spouse, whether that's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, whether that's a father or a mother or a son or a daughter, When you're looking to another human being, another person, to be that final solution for you, what ends up happening is that relationship becomes totally self-satisfying and selfish. If I think that you are the one who can satisfy my needs and ultimately make me feel the love that I've always wanted, ultimately I end up using you to satisfy my needs. Ultimately, I'm using you to try to fill a void that exists in my heart. And this is an awfully unfair burden to place on someone else. Because the moment they reveal a weakness, the moment they reveal that they actually aren't up to that task, well, then they've let me down because I've made this all about that person satisfying me. Not only is it using the other person, but it's foolish. Scripture says that every person is weak and has been broken and has been bound by sin. If we're looking to another person to satisfy our soul ultimately and make us find value in our life, what we're going to find is that once we get through the honeymoon part of the relationship with this person, that that person we're depending on is just as selfish as us. They're just as broken as us. They're bringing in just as much baggage into the relationship as us and just as much need into the relationship as us. We're banking on a broken person filling our souls when that's not what that person's able to do, and they might be banking on us filling their holes. That's toxic to begin with. This is exactly where Samson and Delilah are. They're using each other. Samson's using Delilah for sex and affirmation. Delilah's using Samson to get rich and famous. They're both using each other, and it was bound to end up in someone getting hurt from the very beginning. Biblical love is set in boundaries. Biblical love is something totally different. Let me read to you a a rather often quoted passage from 1 Corinthians 13, but I want you to read it through the lens of selflessness and selfishness. 1 Corinthians 13, it'll come on behind me, reads this. Love is patient. 
Notice the first word there, love is patient. That assumes the other person is causing disturbance in your life that needs patience to, to, to go through it, right? Love is patient assumes the other person is broken and you have to be patient with them as they work out things in their life. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Notice, if love is not irritable, that means there's situations in which a person is doing things that might otherwise cause you to be irritable. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Notice how selfless this passage is. This is all about serving another person, but, but the only way to actually outpour into another person in a selfless way is if the actual need inside your own heart has already been filled. See, selflessness is actually an overflow of a fulfilled heart. Selflessness, this type of biblically bound relationship that actually is good for each other and pours itself out in self-sacrificial love to another person and is not abusive and toxic, demanding power and authority be given to a person, but gives up power and authority to serve the other person, that comes from a soul that's been satisfied fully. That comes from a person who says, I'm not depending on you to give me value, to tell me that I'm loved and I'm lovable because I found that already. I now am so filled, I can pour out in your life. Samson was still looking for this in Delilah. So many of us are still looking for it in other people as well. Sin binds, sin blinds, and it grinds. If you're in a relationship today and you're still hoping that person will give you the value that you need as a person, the value that is innate, that is inside every single person since the fall of Adam and Eve, that relationship is bound for ultimate slavery. It will bind you. But there is a hope. Look to Samson, the rest of his story. Samson, in this moment, has had tragedy strike. Ironically, God has taken away, if you think about this grace in Samson's life, what was the one thing that had been Samson's biggest problem? His eyes. Everything Samson saw, he took, he wanted. And what was the first thing God took from him when he, God finally made Samson weak? He took his eyes. This loving act of mercy that was more pain than I pray anyone will ever have to go through was an act of grace because it was targeted towards the one place Samson had to get rid of to finally make him weak and call out on someone other than a woman to satisfy his soul. Let's pick up in chapter 16, verses 23 through 30. Let me read this story through to the end, starting in verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines, at this point Samson is a slave, gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, for they said, our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson, that he might entertain us. That word entertain in the Hebrew is one dot in the Hebrew, the Hebrew language uses dots, it's one dot off from let him die in front of us. The author is doing a play on words. Let him mock us and entertain us and die in front of us. Wouldn't that be fun entertainment? So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I might lean against them. He's blind. He's a little older now. He's been enslaved. He's being mocked. He says, put my hands on these pillars. I can't see them. 
Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Hear this. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, let me read it to you in the Hebrew. Yahweh. Yahweh. Oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Oh God, that I might be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. Samson's still ridden with revenge. He's still a broken man. He's going about this for all the wrong reasons. But for the first part in all four chapters of Samson's story, he finally calls out that personal name of God. He finally calls out that name that has such significance. Yahweh, I am. Are you there for me right now, God? Are your promises true? I'm still broken, but, but are your promises, do you really love me like you said you would? Samson said, he grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his entire life. And his brothers and his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ashtol in the tomb of his father. Finally, the Lord takes Samson's eyes. The one thing that was hindering him from, from actually being weak before the Lord and vulnerable. God had to take away this one thing from Samson for Samson to finally realize the only thing that can satisfy me is by calling out upon Yahweh, the God who's revealed himself as I am. That's the one promise that has been set for all my fathers before me. Let me call on that and see if it actually works. And in his moment of deepest weakness and vulnerability, Samson depends on someone other than himself. In his moment of deepest weakness and vulnerability, Samson calls out on someone other than himself to be the hero, and God shows up. It's as if God, Samson's calling out to Yahweh saying, God, do you love me? And God responds back, I love you. I never left you. I never left your side. The promise I made to you before your birth stands. No matter what you did, I'm still beside you. Samson's life and death point us in so many ways to Christ. Like Samson, Jesus' death was foretold by an angelic proclamation. Like Samson, who was betrayed by Delilah, Jesus was betrayed by someone who acted like a friend, Judas. Like Samson, Jesus was handed over to Gentile oppressors. Like Samson, Jesus was tortured and chained. Like Samson, Jesus was asked to perform, though unlike Samson, Jesus refused like Samson, Jesus died with outstretched arms alone. Like Samson, Jesus' death brought about a great victory for God's people. But unlike Samson, it wasn't a victory over a human oppressor, but it was a victory over Satan, sin and death. Like Samson, Jesus' friends and family came and laid him in a tomb after his death. But unlike Samson, Jesus didn't stay dead. Christ's victory over death affirms the truthful claims that Christ made when Jesus was alive. See, Jesus had an awful lot of claims he made when he was alive. At one point in the story of Jesus, the religious leaders of his day took him aside and said, Jesus, how is it that you perform all these miracles? How is it that you claim you've been around since before Samson and before Abraham? You know how Jesus responded in that moment? He said, before Abraham was, 
I am. Jesus takes the title of Yahweh on himself. Jesus in that moment declares that love has been made incarnate. The same God that appeared to Moses and met him in his instabilities and said, Moses, no matter what you bring before me, I'm still going to pursue you and I'm going to bring about a victory through you. I am. That is who Jesus was. The same God that appeared to Samson and actually strengthened him in his moment of weakness by grace took Samson's eyes so that he could finally find the fulfillment that he actually needed his entire life. That same God took on flesh. Jesus took that title, I am, upon his life. And that claim that he was God in the flesh, that he was love incarnate, was affirmed when Christ didn't stay dead, but actually rose from the grave. That's not just legend or myth, that's history. Jesus took that name on himself and then proved it by his resurrection from the grave. And the truth is that only Jesus can satisfy your heart. There is no other relationship. There is no risky behavior. There is nothing you can do to satisfy you ultimately and set you on a path of selfless living, of pouring out to others until you first are satisfied fully by Jesus. If you fail to make Jesus Lord of your life, you'll be looking the rest of your life for something else to fill you and you'll never find it. Only Jesus' death and resurrection was meant to satisfy you. Jesus' love alone fills the void at the center of your heart so you can stop looking elsewhere. You can believe on Jesus literally today in the quietness of your seat and start a journey of relationship with Christ where, where out of an outpouring of being filled by Christ, he then uses you in other people's lives. Jesus' love alone conquers every insecurity, every weakness, every doubt, every fear. Nothing else can do that. Jesus' death and resurrection, God taking your place on the cross, shedding his blood for yours, that alone can do it. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Believe on the name of Jesus. It's as simple as that and fill that longing that you've had. Jesus alone is truly self-sacrificing for he laid down his life not just for those who loved him, but he laid down his life for his enemies. That's you and I those who, who, who denied him, those who didn't make him Lord of their life, those whom were seeking fulfillment in other places, Jesus alone satisfies. Believe on him today in this moment. Jesus alone, his love endures. The cross is God telling you, I won't give up on you. I went all the way. There's no distance that's still yet to cover. There's no brokenness you bring before me that I haven't covered fully on the cross. There's no selfishness you're going to reveal to me in in a hidden prayer that you're going to be ashamed of when you stand before me because I put that all on the cross. I've dealt with it in full. There's nothing else to be paid. You're, You're fully loved as you are. You see the safety that gives you? What that means is that you can be you before the throne of Christ. You don't have to pretty yourself up. You don't have to try to be someone else and and put a veneer on as if you're more than you are. Just be you. When Jesus says, I know you in all your brokenness, bring it all before you. In your weakness, that's where you proclaim Jesus. That's where he actually gets a hold of your life and fills you. Jesus alone satisfies. If you never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never made yourself weak like Samson was made weak, if you never made yourself vulnerable before the throne of Christ, if your version of Christianity is take your life in all your strength, in all your ability, in all your accomplishments, and put on Jesus because that's morally good. It seems like that's a good moral life. You're missing it, and you're yet to make Jesus Lord of your life. That's not Christianity. 
Christianity is being made weak before the king of the universe, saying, I have a deep hole in my soul that I will keep looking in destructive places to satisfy unless the king of kings satisfies me. And in your weakness, I am meets you. In your weakness, the God who loved you enough to not just give you moral instructions, but enter into your mess and take your place on the cross, says, I'll satisfy you. And then he begins pouring out his love through you into other people. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to give you a chance this morning. Today is the day of salvation. If you've been living your life and Jesus has been a tack on to the morally good life you think you've been living and you've never actually made yourself weak, if you've never actually reflected on the brokenness you bring into the relationship, I want to give you a chance right now to renew your faith to the Lord and remind yourself that Christianity starts by us being weakened before the Lord of hosts. And then Jesus begins to work his power through us. We're going to have a moment to pray. I'm going to invite you to pray along with me. Jesus, we pray right now. God, as as hard as it is to pray, we want to be like Samson. We want to be made weak. God, if Samson knew to pray this prayer, perhaps he wouldn't have had to have his eyes taken out before he was made weak. God, we desire to be made weak in order that we would see our dependence on you. In order that we wouldn't keep pursuing destructive relationships and hurting other people, but that we'd actually be filled by the one who's able to fill us. I want to give you a moment with your heads bowed, every person in this room with your heads bowed. I want to give you a moment right here for those of you in this room that right now you're realizing I'm still looking. I have that void. I've been looking and I haven't found it yet. I want to give you a chance right now to receive Christ, to allow his love to be poured out on you. It's as simple as just quietly in your prayer saying, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I repent. What that means is I want to be weak before you. Reveal my weakness. You say it quietly in your seats. Jesus, I believe. I believe that you alone can conquer my weakness. Perhaps you're in this room. Keep your heads bowed. Perhaps you're in this room and and you have been a Christian for a long time, but you've forgotten Christianity is a religion about weakness. Christianity is a faith about being weak before the great king we love. If you've begun to believe the lie that you are strong, I give you a moment right now to confess that. God, I bring nothing to this. It's your strength or nothing. It's your love or nothing. It's your spirit filling me, God. We pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.